Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down for that one. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ultimate OE. As most of you would know, Curran and I run a business called Ultimate OE. We specialise in sending young Kiwis and Aussies to Canada and Scotland to work in the hunting industry. Applications for next hunting season, so 2020, both in Canada and Scotland, are now open. As hunters, we're not often happy with inauthentic experiences. We're always looking for something adventurous, more exciting and more unique. Same goes for overseas experiences. We deliver once-in-a-lifetime opportunities, working for the best outfitters in Canada and the best hunting estates in Scotland. Our train-before-you-go setup means that we can secure all the best jobs with the best employers, with the best people and the best spots, all ahead of time, because they know you're going to turn up with the knowledge and skills to hit the ground running when you get there. If you're interested in an OE in Canada or Scotland next year based around hunting in the mountains, it doesn't get much better in my opinion. If you think you might be interested or just want to learn a little bit more about what we do, feel free to get in touch and get us on email at ultimateoemail at gmail.com. You can flick us a PM on Facebook or Instagram, either through the Educated Hunter or Ultimate OE pages. Either will work, whatever blows your hair back. Enjoy the show. G'day and welcome to this week's episode of the Educated Hunter. I think we're a little bit behind, to be honest. I think we missed our last release date as a result of me being away in the States and Curran getting very busy, had some family stuff come up. So apologies for that if you've been sitting around waiting for the next one. Uh, it's going to be worth the wait. I'm fresh off the plane as of 2am this morning from Reno, Nevada, where I attended the Safari Club International show, which is a big hunting show. Um, primary function there, obviously, just visiting with all our employers for the Ultimate OE program, but obviously a great time to get a bunch of people in the same room or access to a bunch of people who are in the same room from a podcasting point of view. So I've smashed out at least one podcast a day since I've been there. The one that I'm most excited about is the one that we've got for you today. I sat down with Don Hammond from the Game Animal Council. My intention was to get a recording of what the Game Animal Council is, how it works, how it functions, why it's important and what they've done up to this point and put some context on it. I think as hunters, me included, we make a lot of assumptions of, I've made a lot of assumptions about the Game Animal Council that weren't necessarily true. So this is me putting my hand up and saying, I've said some stuff on this podcast in the past that I got the wrong end of the stick. There was a couple of times during this interview, I was like, oh, that makes more sense. You shouldn't have said that, Matthew. So we all make mistakes. Um, and I think when we have these conversations, because they are free-flowing flowing conversations, a lot of the time um, we don't do our fact-checking as probably well as we should. So as far as the Game Animal Council goes, this was an awesome fact-check. I think for 57 minutes of audio, every New Zealand hunter or anyone who hunts in New Zealand or has got an interest in hunting in New Zealand should 100% listen to it. The Game Animal Council is finally starting to get some traction and I think this podcast does a really good job of explaining why, as hunters, be it commercial, professional, recreational, 
doesn't matter. We should care about the Game Animal Council, why we should support the Game Animal Council and understand what they do and just how important they are for hunters in New Zealand. So have a listen to this and then if you see anyone, hear anyone talking about the Game Animal Council and you think that they've got the wrong end of the stick or maybe not quite the right idea, then I suggest putting this in front of them and saying, hey look, take an hour out of your life next time you're going for a long drive or sitting on the tractor or doing whatever and listen to Don explain the journey for the last six years since we had the Game Animal Council was formed and essentially some of the short passes he got from the government and what he's had to deal with in order to get as far as he's got. Um, and not only Don, his committee of councillors that he's had with him that give up their own time, by the way, it's on a volunteer basis, um, in order to try and better the situation for New Zealand hunters and the animals that we enjoy to hunt and the environments that we hunt in. It's incredibly powerful, I think. I'm blowing my own trumpet. I'm the only one who's ever heard it. <laughs> so I could be completely off base. But listen for the next hour and let us know what you think. Cheers. Thank you, Don, for joining me. I've managed to grab Don Hammond. We are in Reno, Nevada at the moment at the SCI convention. And you're actually here under your New Zealand professional hunting guides capacity. Is that right? A uh, combination of professional hunting guides and, and representing Game Animal Council and, and the support of the, of the guides is really important. Yep. Yep, I agree with that. And as far as the Game Animal Council goes, where do you sit? What's your role within the Game Animal Council now and in the past? So I'm chairman of the Game Animal Council. I was the uh, appointed by the minister as the inaugural chair in 2014. Uh, I'm coming to the end of my statutory term. I can't serve more than six years. Okay. Um, so I've had the uh, the huge privilege, I think, of getting the team together and establishing the Game Animal Council. It's been a slow start because of resources, but I think we've got a, a tremendous team and we're starting to get traction. Yep. Uh, vitally important to the sector, to the whole hunting sector in New Zealand. Yep. And um, in my view, the probably the most significant opportunity that the hunting sector has had since the demise of the acclimatisation societies in the 1930s. And I very firmly believe that we are unlikely to ever get the opportunity again. Yeah. So it's it's absolutely crucial we we get it right this time. We add value to both the hunters and the non-hunters, and uh, we create a um, a society where hunting is respected and valued. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, protecting the things that we as Kiwis hold close, which is you know the our indigenous species and the wide open spaces and environment. Yep, agree with that, and. Like we were talking about before we, we hit record, you know, the, the Game Animal Council, when it was formed in 2014, like, there's a lot of good old New Zealand hunters, what I'd call the average New Zealand hunting public, that um, either has a um, no idea what the Game Animal Council is, has an idea of it that's maybe not 100% correct, or, you know, a formed opinion. So what what exactly is the Game Animal Council, and what is it? You know, what's the primary function? What's it there for, from my perspective, a New Zealand hunter? Yeah, really good question, Matt, and, and a good point um, about our visibility, I suppose, amongst the hunting sector. I quite deliberately, when the, the council was established, we had very, very minimal resources. Yep. And the first, everyone wanted to uh, 
hit the head, <coughs> excuse me, hit the headlines, um, get on social media, get in the magazines, and I said, let's just take this slowly because we create an expectation, yeah. and then we don't have the resources to to respond to that expectation. That's actually more damaging than people not knowing you exist. Yeah. So it's been absolutely vital that we just build up slowly, create the resource that we can support uh, and respond to the expectations of, of the hunting sector. Um, where do I see it heading in, in the things that are important? Game animals are part of our culture in New Zealand. Uh, we go back to pre-European, pre-European and Māori had a very strong hunting culture. They needed that to survive. Uh, with the arrival of European, a number of new species were brought to New Zealand and, and we can debate the pros and cons of that, but the reality is they exist. Uh, we need to respect that there is a strong hunting culture. The opportunity for the average Kiwi to get out and go hunting is deeply embedded in New Zealand. Uh, and equally, there's a lot of people in New Zealand who who rely on that hunting opportunity to provide food for their family. So it's yep. not just about sport and recreation and commerce, it's about providing protein for the family. Yep. Um, and we see that particularly in some small rural communities uh, where pork and venison is, is the staple meat yep. and supplemented by fish. Yep. Um, so that hunting culture is very, very strong and... It's the belief of the council and, and I think all hunters that they want that opportunity for future generations. Yep. Now, I think we've moved on from the days of we just want a deer behind every tree so that it's really easy. We, we've got a huge respect for our natural environment. That's what we cherish and it's what makes New Zealand different. Yep. Um, and so we want, to un, we want to create an environment where those game animal herds are managed within the constraints of the environment to create opportunities for both the recreational hunter, the, the guy that's out hunting to provide food for his family, and those that are providing commercial opportunities, particularly for overseas visitors. Yeah. Uh, and that requires management. You just can't sort of have a laissez-faire approach where everyone just sort of, oh, well, we'll sort it out if it becomes a problem. We need to manage these resources within the constraints. Yeah. So there's two aspects there I want to hit on. Um, the second one is I want to talk about what management means compared to control. I think that's a really important differentiation to make. Um, but before we get to that, the Game Animal Council is a, is a statutory body. What does that mean from a political sense in terms of what your actual function or reach, or what do you actually physically do as the council? Yeah, that's, that's a, a crucial uh, differentiation, I guess, Matt. Um, we've had a number of clubs and associations we've got the deer stalkers and the pig hunters and various other people that are a group of like-minded individuals getting together to promote um, their particular hunting interest the game animal council is a statutory body it's, it has its own act the game animal council act it, its council members are appointed by the minister and oh, it has uh, the minister of conservation and it has a responsibility to provide advice to the minister and, and through to government and various things that relate to hunting, such as not only game animals but firearms and, and a whole bunch of other um, aspects of our society. Um, so our responsibilities are, we have statutory responsibilities. We also have something that those clubs and that don't have and that is that as a statutory body we are part of government. 
Right. And therefore, when uh, various components of government are thinking about new legislation or, or Resource Management Act uh, plans, uh, management plans for national parks, all of those sorts of things, the Game Animal Council as a statutory body has that opportunity, that right to be heard right. and consulted with, whereas the clubs and associations who do a great job, there is no legal obligation for the Crown to listen to them. Right. And I think that's a really important differentiation. Okay, and I, I think that is a, a very important point, but it comes with, from my understanding, because essentially you are reporting to the Minister or offering advice to the Minister, um, whereas, say, the TAR Foundation can um, be a little bit more direct in um, criticising, say, certain elements of the TAR control plan, whereas the Game Animal Council, because essentially we're appointed by the Minister of Conservation, we're not in a position where we can actively attack, I don't know if that's the right word, the Minister. And I think that's, when the TAR thing happened, I think a lot of people in New Zealand couldn't understand why the Game Animal Council wasn't on this side of the fence versus that side of the fence. So I think that's a really important differentiation to make and understand that relationship that the Game Animal Council has to have with the appointed conservation minister at the time. You're absolutely right. Um, We are part of government and and as a consequence we need to think carefully about our position on a whole bunch of issues. 1080 is another one. Um, Helicopter recovery of meat is another one where... We are there to try and provide that middle ground where we can get a compromise that works for everybody. It's really important that we recognise too that our landlord is the Department of Conservation. So the Game Animal Council's uh, responsibilities and um, opportunities exist on public conservation land. We can provide advice to private land, but we have no statutory ability to change anything on private land. Whereas on public conservation land, that's where our um, area to operate is, and therefore we need to work very closely with the Department of Conservation, who are effectively our landlord. Yeah, and from a, my perspective, then, you know, the effectiveness of the Game Animal Council and things that are in, say, the, the five year plan really comes down to the relationship we hold and the relationships we build with the Department of Conservation and the Minister. So we can't be throwing our hands up in the air, um, eroding that relationship has an overall negative effect. Would that be a fair statement? It's absolutely true. And in fact, the council has spent the last six years since its establishment um, building that relationship. And I think we actually have a, a strong relationship with the minister and with the department. And we communicate regularly on issues. The minister contacts the council for advice and information. Uh, seeks understanding of particular things. Similarly, the Department of Conservation. Now, we will, it's like a family. We will have our disagreements. And to be fair, when the current minister started her term, the relationship wasn't great. Would that be a fair statement? The minister came from a a very public position of saying she was opposed to the establishment of the Game Animal Council um, and she was not... Uh, fair to say she was not supportive, but I have to, I have to um, recognise that we've built that relationship. Yep. Uh, we've shown the minister that there is value in having the Game Animal Council to help her achieve 
the things that she's really passionate about, which is around indigenous biodiversity. Yep. So a good example is um, we've got a number of entities, the Fiordland Wapiti Foundation, the Seeker Foundation, who are actively uh, trapping predators, yep. using hunters' money, because hunters don't want rats and cats and wasps and other things in the forest either. Yeah. So we're actually a lot, very closely aligned on those things, um, and we want to work hard with the with the department and, and the minister to achieve those outcomes, those greater outcomes. Yeah. So that relationship is crucial. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that's really really encouraging to hear. Um, just to hark back to one of the um, things we started with in the establishment of the Game Animal Council, and sort of getting things set up before you really start to push into being more public. And I mean, doing this podcast is a clear indication to me that we're getting into a position where it's now important to start establishing a, an awareness and a relationship with the New Zealand hunting public about what the Game Animal Council does. But talk to me a little bit about well, what I think is important to point out is some of that structure is essentially establishing a revenue stream for the Game Animal Council so we have longevity in what we have. Is that a fair statement? Can you talk to that? Yeah, it's absolutely true. To, so to give you some perspective, I got a letter uh, when I was appointed as chair, which I still have because it, um, it fascinates me. Yeah. It was a one-page letter, hard copy, um, signed by the then Associate Minister of Conservation. Congratulations, you're the chair of the newly, appoint, newly appointed chair of the Game Animal Council. Here's your 10 fellow council members. Um, good luck to all who sail in or all work, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So I went back to the Department of Conservation, who clearly were the, the contact point, and said, could you at least give me some phone numbers and emails for these council members who <laughs> I don't know? And the answer was, no, we can't, because the Privacy Act prevents it. Oh, no kidding. So I, I literally got a one-page letter saying, away you go. Here's but your team. Here's your team. Go and find them scattered around the country. And, and the department had to go to each of those individuals, ask their consent for the department to share with me their emails and phone numbers so I could contact them. So no GST number, no bank account, no absolutely nothing, blank page. Uh, and and a $100,000 grant, should we call it a grant, $100,000 contribution to get established. Now, when you had 11 people scattered from Invercargill to Auckland, it's about 10,000 bucks just to get them in one place. Yeah, no kidding. So 100,000 bucks, as you can appreciate, doesn't go anywhere. No. Um, and that's why I said earlier about we didn't want to create the expectation, rush out there and say, here we are, guys, what are we going to do, you know, uh, because we would have been inundated with ideas, questions that we needed to respond to. And all of the work to date has been done on a voluntary basis by those councillors. And, and I have to recognise the huge amount of work that those councillors have done for no reward yeah. other than the, the internal reward of knowing that they are contributing to the future of hunting in New Zealand. Yeah. Why I'm excited now is that we have uh, two months ago appointed Tim Gale as our general manager. Yeah. So we now have that human resource, that person who's working eight hours a day five days a week on Game Animal Council matters so we can actually start to go out and talk to people, build that um, expectation and be able to respond to it. So yep. that's why I think we've really uh, come of age, I suppose, and we expect over time to um, potentially grow that. We don't know at this stage. Yep. But a lot of that has come about, and, and this is where I do recognise the minister, our, our current minister, um, has allocated some funding to us on an annual basis 
um, which is what has allowed us to employ Tim. Yeah. So funding for the Game Animal Council, uh, the Act requires the council to be largely self-funding, but there is a public good component in there. So the council's view is that funding for, for the council should be a, a three-legged stool. Uh, funding should come from the Crown for the public good component, advice to the Minister. Um, we have to be audited by the Audit Office. We have to present a report to Parliament. All of those are public good things that the Crown should be paying for. Yep. The second component is is what we refer to as the commercial sector. So that's the outfitters, the professional hunting guides who are bringing people in. They've got a commercial interest in game animals. Um, and the Act allows for um, the establishment of an export trophy levy, okay. which for our for those people, those businesses, customers to understand, their clients to understand, we refer to it as an export tag, okay. because globally a tag is a recognised term, whereas um, it's the same thing. And we, we've uh, put that proposal before the Minister and we expect that we will get a response to that in the very near future. Okay. The third component of funding needs to come from the recreational hunter. So the, the guy who lives in Te Aumuru or Te Aneo who goes hunting at the weekend, how can he contribute? We have no legal mechanism right. that allows us to say, you need to buy a licence, pay for a permit, whatever. So we're looking at a, a voluntary um, funding mechanism through the retail stores. And we've got really good buy-in from the, the big retailers of firearms and ammunition. Okay. Um, where they will assist in con contributing to the Game Animal Council. So if we've got those three components, uh, we have a stable funding base. It allows us to um, to really start doing some, some good work. Um, some of that's research, some of it's training and safety and a whole bunch of things that we haven't been able to do, do to date. Yeah. Um, and we're not completely reliant on any one. So yeah. the commercial market goes up and down or the... Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're in a much better position. Okay, so here's a, um, well, just to provide some context. So you've got your, the crown providing as one leg of the stall. Second leg of the stall is the commercial aspect. We're talking about a, an export tag or an export levy, which in a practical sense sets um, a dollar amount on a trophy leaving New Zealand. Yes. And we, well, the Game Animal Council will work with sort of Customs and Border Patrol to make sure that everybody from a um, an American client coming over and hunting on an estate property, as well as an Australian hunter coming over and hunting, doing a DIY tar hunt on his own, will have to pay a, an export tag per animal leaving New Zealand. Is that correct? Yeah. So it will be. Uh, it's it'll be legislated for. It'll be in the regulations. So it's a legal requirement that any trophy of deer, tar, chamois and, and pigs, yeah. um, that levy is paid. Okay. That's really, really positive. I'm really happy to hear that we've got to that point. Um, and I think it's, and I was also uh, happy to hear that the, the New Zealand Professional Hunting Guides Association have been a part of the process and had a buy into it. So they are aware of and happy with the dollar of out that's been negotiated, which I, that makes me really happy. And then the third pillar is obviously coming from recreational hunters. And I think this is where the education point of view is really important for you guys, the Game Animal Council, because it'll be a bit of a shock to the average Kiwi hunter's system if the first time they ever hear about the Game Animal Council is a levy that they're paying at the hunting store. So let's go about it this way. What are 
what are they paying for? I mean, what would be the direct benefits that the average New Zealand hunter is going to get out of it or some of the benefits? I think everyone looks at uh, whenever they have to pay any money to anyone for anything, they weigh up the cost versus the benefit. You know, If you go and buy a meal, yeah. if I'm hungry enough, I don't care what I pay. Yeah, yeah. If you're stuck in an airport, that's the one time you don't care about how much you're spending yep. on food. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, the recreational hunter, um, what are they going to get? Firstly, they're going to get representation at a, at, a high, at a statutory level. And, mate, I can't express to anyone who's listening how bloody important that is. I've been in enough rooms in my small career where our representation as hunters just hasn't been there. Yep. So that is super important. So, so representation at those highest levels, at all levels of government, so it's not just central government, but it's also regional government with pest management plans. And an example of that is the Auckland Pest Management Plan has fallow deer as a pest. Yeah. Um, now, we need to work to overturn that. And, and they're not going to want to overturn it unless we're going to offer an alternative, which is management of those animals at a level they're not causing a problem. Yeah. Um, the tar resource is another really good example of where there was a requirement to, you know, the minister wanted tar numbers reduced. And initially it was just, let's get some helicopters up there and, and shoot tens of thousands of them. Um, the Game Animal Council, I guess, brokered uh, a process by which numbers would come down, which was what the minister wanted. But the bulls would not be shot, uh, which is what most of the hunters want. And a number of other factors. So we, we're there to protect that resource yeah. while respecting the other, you know, there are some other things. Um, the Wapiti Foundation, who do a, a fabulous job of managing the Wapiti resource within Fiordland uh, in conjunction with the Department of Conservation. And they take something like, if, if I remember rightly, a thousand animals a year out of that herd uh, to ensure that the herd numbers remain... Um, below the level that the environment can sustain. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing that the recreational hunter will get out of yeah. of having a game animal council. Currently we know that um, feral deer numbers throughout New Zealand are rising. Mm -hmm. And so there's a huge education thing there because there's a whole generation of hunters who don't generally shoot females mm -hmm. because they went through a period in the 70s and 80s when there were very few deer, so generally they'd shoot males. Mm -hmm. We now need to re-educate and say, look, we need to take some of these females out of the population to, to reduce that population increase. Yeah. Because otherwise, the Department of Conservation is going to be obligated to do something perhaps more drastic and draconian, which we don't want exactly. as hunters. So we need to be working as part of that process. Yeah, so I think that is an important point to make, that in New Zealand and as hunters in general, all around the world, based on my experience, we have... We often have to, we're reacting to things as a knee-jerk, as a direct response to a decision being made. What the Game Animal Council is doing is all that pre-work we should have done before the curve, before we get to that point, which is really, really, really important stuff. Um, I see the Seeker Foundation are starting to do a really, really good job of that. Like I see they have, you know, they put up on their Facebook the other day the opportunity to go and be part of a deer management cull program in the backcountry. Um, if you're interested in the Seeker stuff, listen to the podcast I did with, his name is escaping me right now, but it's... Cam Speedy, perhaps? No, no. no. One of the other guys who lives in Taupo, um, who's on the foundation, had a really good chat to him about why, about all that kind of stuff. So that's really encouraging. Um, so 
brokering deals and being a representation in the room when those conversations are happening. And then I guess another element is bringing the different interested parties together and brokering those relationships between, you know, commercial war operations, you know, the outfitting side of things, whether they're using helicopters or not, depending on what animals they're hunting, recreational hunting and the Department of Conservation. We all need to be, you know, talking to each other and have a, an established relationship where um, it makes sense for everybody. No one's going to get exactly what they want, but if we can come to, like we have enough in common, even with, dare I say it, like fish, uh, forest and bird, we have enough common goals that we can get 95% of the way there in terms of agreement, which is how you move forward. Um, that's really, really encouraging. If I can give you a couple of um Examples. The very first piece of work the council was required to do was develop a um, aerial assisted trophy hunting code of practice. Yep. Now, on the one hand, you had the commercial operators, the helicopter operators, and the guides saying, "We want this, and we're going to do it our way." And we had, on the other hand, the generally the deer stalkers and those recreational hunters' position was over my dead body. Yep. We got both of those parties in a room. We used, um, we got Jonathan Wallace from Alpine Helicopters to chair that group. So the deer stalkers, the um, AATH operators, they sat down and drafted a, a code of practice that was presented to the minister and both of them willing to sign it. Right. So, so that was where we could reduce conflict between those groups. And you're right, we've got so much in common that we need to work cooperatively. We've got to recognise we've got different views on how things should happen. But by and large, yeah, we all have this passion for hunting uh, and we all have a, a need for somebody to manage those res- those um, resources. Otherwise, we run the risk of losing them. Yeah. The um, We're doing you know further work in things like um, a few years ago, the, the department started its Battle for Our Birds program because they recognised there were these huge beach mast years, mm-hmm. which would result in a, a big explosion of rodents, particularly rats and stoats. Um, not that stoats are a rodent. Um, that would severely threaten some species of birds. We said to the department, and, and that required vast areas of 1080. Yeah. Now, none of us want 1080. We just recognise that it is a tool that is going to allow us to protect those endangered birds. So we worked with the department and said, how about we use deer repellent in these specific areas, which were primarily for recreational hunters, yeah. where there were high values that recreational hunters uh, placed on those those particular herds. Places, uh, herds like the whitetail at Glenorchy, the, uh, the fallow in the Blue Mountains, the cob reservoir around uh, Furunaki. So those sorts of things where we can reduce that conflict. And I had a really interesting conversation with the chair of the New Zealand Conservation Authority when he was first appointed. And and I recall his sort of opening statement was, you and I are going to have problems. (laughs) And and I knew him from from other work. So I said, how do you you see that? And he said, well, you know, you're there promoting game animals. And I said, well, I see it like this. As I said before, there's a whole bunch of species that none of us want. Cats, rats, stoats, and so forth. So we're in agreement on that. We're also, if we're really honest, in agreement that game animals are here and they're here to stay. 
So the real, the only area where there's potential conflict is at what number should those game animals be? Yeah. You want low numbers, hunters want higher numbers. There's yeah. got to be some middle ground where we can work together on bigger outcomes such as our indigenous biodiversity, such as getting people out, recreating, hunting, uh, you know, all the health and all those other sorts of things. So when you think about it, we've got much more in common than... And the, the irony of it is from a hunting point of view, which, you know, you, once you've seen a bit of management in place, and this is harping back to that management versus control, the irony is that that middle ground you're talking about in terms of numbers, if they, that herd is managed correctly, is actually better for the New Zealand hunter, the recreational hunter, be it a meat hunter or trophy hunter, than it is to have high numbers. High numbers result in poor quality antlers, poor quality condition, so they're not as good to eat, they have less fat, they breed less, and they're just the overall population is not as good as it would be if you reduced the number, they had ample amount to eat, but at the same time, they're not creating a over, overly well, too extreme impact on the natural environment, which is what the other side want to protect. So that middle number is actually good for both sides. So it's not like we even have to have a compromise. The only issue is, is a lot of New Zealand hunters think high numbers is best. And if we start reducing numbers, they panic. You know, they don't want it to go back to the days of the, you know, late 70s, early 80s, where you know, my old man says it to nauseam. He went hunting 17 times before he saw a deer. Mm. Nobody wants it to get back to that point, and that's not what we're aiming for. We're aiming for that middle ground, which would benefit everybody. And it's just, it's frustrating at times when you like the worst thing I can do or anyone can probably do is go on social media and see some of the comments and the the short sightedness of your average guy that's an armchair expert to say that we could do this and this and Doc are just out to get us and blah blah blah. It's really frustrating because all that does is erode the overall goal so that does make me feel um it gives me hope let's put it that way you're absolutely right and i think the the seeker foundation you look at the data they've got the quality of the animals um there's too many of them fundamentally the minister knows that we know that so the real question comes how do we change that yeah you know the animals are in poor condition so they're not going to grow good heads they're not that good to eat and at the end of the day, even an animal welfare thing, you don't want animals starving to death. No, it's just you, simply not right. And you don't want an, a deer choking on a 1080 pellet either from an animal welfare mm. point of view. Like, let's be honest. Yep. If you did that in a fence out the front on State Highway 1, you'd spend time in jail if you did that to your deer herd. Yep. So let's be perfectly honest about that. Nobody really wants that outcome. So as hunters, I think there's an opportunity to... You know, we're guilty a little bit in New Zealand of as long as our little patch is looked after, we don't actually really care what's happening with everything else. We might say we do or, you know, maybe we want to go hunt a tar someday so we'll sign something or donate a bit of money there. But as long as nobody's touching our little patch. So we have a an obligation, I think, to step up and manage that little bit. And I think that's one of the biggest hurdles we've got from an education point of view is having guys understand the difference between management and control. We've had control hammered into us for so long you think people think that going out and just culling deer is management it's not it's culling so you're exterminating rather than enhancing management is in, is enhancing and is better for everything but the pill we're going to have to swallow as a New Zealand hunter is management actually means constraint and restriction and a logical plan not just do whatever the hell you want which I think 
you know, let's talk about the um, the the Tar app that you guys have launched, which I think is a great initiative. There's a, I think, some elements of the New Zealand hunting public viewed that as the ability for them to be involved in the culling operation. So, okay, culling's now on New Zealand hunters. Let's use the app to go out and we'll just report how many animals we shoot. That's not what it's there for, is it? No, and and the Tar app is, a, I think, is a huge innovation. Um, we don't know what. With, with any certainty what the contribution of the recreational hunter is. You know, how many, anecdotally, we hear of people shooting tar. What the department needs and the minister needs and we need is is science, is evidence that actually X number of tar have been taken out. Now, yep. we the data we get just simply says, in Mount Cook National Park on the 13th of January, somebody shot a female. That's yep. all we know. That's all we need to know. Yeah. Because we can collate that data and firstly confirm just how uh, significant the recreational hunter contribution to to um, taking animals is. Yep. And, and secondly, we can um, then redesign our management plans around, well, we know the recreational hunter is going to take this many. We know the commercial hunters need that many. What's the population dynamics that will allow those things to happen? Yeah. There's in on the outskirts of Copenhagen is a huge park, and they manage uh, several species of deer within that park. Yeah. And and the head gamekeeper can tell you to within one or two animals exactly how many hinds, how many stags of every age class there are wow. on every species. And the king comes along once a year and shoots the 13-year-old stag. Yeah, that's. And there's two 12-year-olds and there's five 11-year-olds. And, and you can go around with him and he will say, oh, there'll be a little herd over here and there's a spiker in amongst there with a broken tine. We'll shoot him. Yeah. You know, That's management. That's really intense management. That's extreme. We're never going to get to that point. We'll never get to that. Yeah. But what we need is to understand fecundity rates, how many, you know, when the animals are in good health, what's their breeding rate. So for, for tar in particular, we want large numbers of males rather than females. Yep. Um, in Woodhill, for the fallow herd, we want big, healthy animals because it's a meat herd. It's not a trophy herd. Yep. So we've got to recognise that's different in different places. Yep. How do we do that? We need science. That requires resources, obviously, and it requires the, the recreational hunter to be part of that process. Yep. So from a Game Animal Council point of view, how much of your... I guess, remit or mandate is dedicated to gathering that science research. So as, as noted before, we've really only just got to the point where we've got the resources to really start focusing on that. Mm-hmm. The best we've been able to do is, is to date is coattail on a few other research projects to work with um, universities and DOC and yep. the various animal foundations, Seeker and Tara and Wapiti. Um, is it a future it focus? is absolutely a future focus. Right. And as the resource becomes available, we, we need to be thinking about, okay, where do we, what data is required to help support this? So if I look at the Himalayan tar control plan from 1993, 25, 27 years old now, yeah. it recognised the need for research yeah. to manage that herd. Now, none of that's been done. So we've really got to get down to basics. And while that plan talks about an absolute number of tar, 
was a guess at that time. It was well, it was probably uh, in those days there were probably less than that. Yeah. Because there were so few tar, everyone thought, oh, well, that's a huge number. Today's quite different. We've got a lot more piece public conservation land as a result of tenure review. We've taken merinos off all that country. But most importantly, what is the ecological effect of those tar in those individual places? And there'll be places where actually we want really low densities yep. in the national parks because they're there to protect indigenous flora and fauna. Yep. However, on some of the um, land that has become back into the conservation estate from tenure review, maybe they can tolerate much higher numbers of tar yeah. um, with no ecological damage. And that's such an important cornerstone. When you start, you know, everybody's got their idealistic view of how things should happen and we should change this and change that. And I learned pretty quickly in my short tenure sort of in the world with the Mountain Safety Council and how everything worked that unless, A, you had a seat at the table and a voice in the room, no, you're never going to get anywhere. And B, if you're going to stand up and say something, you better bloody well have the statistics and the science to back you up, as well as the numbers of people that you're representing. So it is important for hunters to understand what the Game Animal Council is there for and why they are gathering revenue from the various elements of hunting in New Zealand and what's that used for. It's important to New Zealand hunters to understand that Unless they put their hand up and become a member of one of the associations, be it um, New Zealand Deer Stalkers or Tar Foundation or whatever, choose your poison, we need to have a, a, a really strong idea about how many Kiwis hunt. Because politicians only care about votes, right? So they are more than happy to squish a group of people if they only think it's going to cost them a small number of votes. If you can tell them, well, actually, we represent a group of 200,000 Kiwis who are really passionate about this thing, and the one thing that's going to get them to the voting booth are these issues, then you'll soon notice that politicians will stand up and start listening. So I can't stress enough how important it is as a hunter to finally have a, a statutory body that is there to represent hunters because there's a, a bunch of different things, and I'm looking at the... Um, the sort of the five-year plan for the Game Animal Council, and there's a lot of different stuff in there. Like it's to me, I read that and I thought, "Whew, that's overwhelming." There's a lot of stuff, but one of the things, well, you know, there's stuff about research in there, which I think is great. There's stuff about management strategies, which I think is great. There's stuff about getting onto the um, revenue stream, establishing that. Um, but the biggest the number one theme is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is um, enhancing specific herds of game animals within New Zealand. Is that would be that be fair? Um, I don't think it's necessarily number one, right? But it's certainly an important priority. It's ve within the Act. It talks about herds of special interest. Okay. And Explain to me what a herd of special interest is for the so, benefit of. Okay, so a herd of special interest is is effectively legislative for it. Requires the minister's approval. Okay. Um, and requires that herd to be a defined herd, um, with a management plan. Okay. Now. As I said earlier, the Department of Conservation is our landlord, so they have to be part of that developing that management plan because yep. they have a much bigger mandate yep. than the Game Animal Council. We've done a whole lot of initial work with the department, drafting up, I guess you'd call it a template, what does a management plan look like for a herd of special interest? I think there's a couple of outstanding candidates. Yep. Um, the Wapiti Foundation, yep. very, very keen, and, and have their management plan and, have, you know, 
They understand the ecology. They use land care to do research, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, the Seeker Foundation are going flat out down that same track, and they've, they've progressed a long way. Yeah. I think there are opportunities for other herds of special interest. And we need to understand that people, as you said earlier, everyone has their special herd yeah. where they go hunting. That doesn't make it a herd of special interest. Right. But the whitetail at, uh, at Glenorchy could be considered the Blue Mountains fallow herd. There's a number of herds that... Because the, the herd of special interest, um, it has an historical element to it as well, does it not? Like a, Or is it more about the fact that it's a defined herd in a defined place that you can put a boundary on it? It's probably more the latter, but I think if we look at the history, we had what were called recreational hunting areas developed under the Forest Service, which was really a response to the, the meat recovery industry in the 60s, 70s and early yeah. 80s. Um, established under the Wild Animal Control Act, sort of largely in abeyance, but it was the precursor yeah. to um, developing or recognising that some herds had, in some places, had special um, importance to, to recreational hunters. Um, interestingly, I did my honours paper on, I wrote the uh, Capels Greenstown really? Recreational Hunting Area Plan. Huh. Um, a lot of that has sort of we've moved on from that. Yeah. Um, that was focused on particular herds, but in a geographic place that everyone valued. Yeah. Um, I think we the herds of special interest require a defined geographic area. We need to have a sort of, I guess, a justification for saying actually this one should be. We need to consider this as a herd of special interest versus. Yeah. somewhere else which is interesting but not necessarily that special yeah we also need to prioritize yeah uh, because of resources we also need to recognize that currently our minister has said she's not willing to entertain um, the gazettle of any herds of special interest um, but again I think that's partly an education process both for hunters and for for our minister and the department that actually if we had a herd of special interest for say seeker, we then have the mandate to start managing that herd yeah. and achieve the outcomes that everyone wants, which is clearly at the moment less animals in better condition, yep. help improve the habitat, all those sorts of things. Yep. So really important. Okay. And I, I think it's important to say too that you know, herds of special interest are you know, probably going to be reserved for those, as you say, special, let's call it special herds. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you know, if you're sitting in palmy thinking about your hunting opportunities in the Rohinis or the Tauruas, it doesn't mean that those areas can't be managed better than they are currently being managed right now. For example, there's always been a, you know, particularly in those areas that aren't the marquee Wapiti areas or the Tar or the, you know, Otago Red Deer Herd, whatever. You know, the guys that are hunting, primarily meat hunting, but, you know, if you see a 12-pointer, you're not, not going to shoot it. Type hunters in the Tauruas sort of feel like they've been will probably feel like they're not part of that special conversation. But those guys are equally as passionate about their spots and they you know, they have the same gripes with, you know, wild animal waro stuff and helicopter pilots and dock and and then those areas there's no reason why, you know, as a group of hunters in a specific area, you can't band together and have these conversations with 
you know, your local authorities, local dock, local Waro helicopter pilots. I mean, most of the helicopter pilots are hunters. They understand it, but there's no coherent management. You know, they're in the air. They see there's lots of deer, you know, so for them, you know, it's pretty obvious there's lots, and whereas the recreational hunters are complaining because they have to walk more than five minutes from a car park or, you know, they go up into the tops and they can't find any mature stags or whatever the gripe is. I'm just making this stuff up. But... If you're sitting there thinking, well, you know, I don't live by the Wapiti or I don't live by the tar or I'm not hunting whitetail in Glen Orkey, so this doesn't really apply to me. I, I honestly think that although these herds of special interest are sort of the, the flagship of that movement and hopefully we'll get there as different governments change and we get different ministers, we're going to keep working um, as a hunters group in the Game Animal Council. But I think there's an opportunity to take that example and bring it onto your home patch. Like, it's amazing what a little bit of management does. And depending on where it is, everywhere's different. Like, the Tower is going to have a very different management plan from what, you know, Glenny Walkie Whitetail is going to look at. Like, it's, it's night and day. Mm. And you'll if you actually sit down and have the conversations and leave all the historical baggage at the door, I think you'll find that, you know, your interests are actually aligned in a lot of different ways. Like the guys that are flying the helicopters, they want there to be deer for them to hunt and they want it to be a consistent number over a consistent period of time because they're trying to run a business and make money. The recreational guys want a good number of animals, want them to be in good condition and they, you know, if they're trophy hunters, they might want to shoot the odd big one and Doc want them to be managed at a certain level so they're not causing damage. So bring all your local people to the table and have that conversation. Like I can't stress that enough. Yeah, you make a really good point there, Matt, and, and I'll use as an example, you've raised the Roahinis. So the Game Animal Council has, effect, again, effectively brought the the combatants together mm-hmm. um, in a Roahini, what's it called, Roahini Red Deer Working Group, yeah, group. That's cool. Um, <clears throat> which included the helicopter operators and the deer stalkers and various other people to try and iron out, you know, how can we manage this? And, avoid, and reduce the conflict between those users. The Waro guys, what they want is, is good-sized animals. They don't want to go around shooting skinny animals because that's not what they're looking for. You're absolutely right. They want a consistent supply, if that's the term. Yeah. Uh, and the Game Animal Council absolutely sees Waro as part of that management process. Now, I've, I've been beaten up fairly regularly by Waro operators saying stay out of our business but what I'm actually saying is we want to be able to have Waro as part of that management tool yeah. and and for the Waro guys to know that um, if I use the Fiordland Wapiti the foundation's going to take let's say a thousand animals a year well that's that's almost a bankable contract Yeah, you know you've got you can then justify uh, expenditure on marketing that product overseas because you know you're going to get a thousand animals a year year after year whereas our current system is a boom and bust one price of venison goes up every helicopter's out there chasing them causing mayhem and then as soon as the price drops everyone well if you're a processor and a marketer it's the worst it's bad news going to your customers saying sorry there's no venison this year the price is too low yeah that doesn't work yeah so i I, to stress it again and we're probably saying it a normal at, at nauseas in, in this but there's there's always a middle ground and I honestly think because I mean I know several helicopter operators that do Waro and if they knew that the contract was this number and this is when they were flying and these are the animals that they were targeting and 
blah, blah, blah. They'd, they'd jump at it because it takes all the guesswork out of it. It takes all the uncertain, uncertainty out of it. It takes all that kind of stuff. And I think if recreational hunters understood more about what the Waro guys were doing, i.e. how many they were taking a year, when they were taking them, what they were taking, and that was all out in the open, I think there would be much less conflict because the issue is, and the perception is, and it comes from those recovery days in the 60s, 70s, 80s, where the Waro guys are in the air to shoot every deer they can find and they make money, they don't care about recreational hunters, they don't care about anything, they're just making money off what New Zealand hunters consider to be their resource or something that New Zealanders own collectively and you've got one or two guys in a helicopter making money out of it and that's where you get that gripe from. But if it was part of a management plan and the numbers are right there on table and they were held to numbers, animal selection, area, time, all that was out on the table, I think 90% of that conflict would drop off. I mean, you know, we've all been there as New Zealand. There's nothing worth coming around the corner in a river's bend and firing a steaming gut pile in the middle of the river. Like, that sucks. I get it. I understand it, but I think if it was a lot more out in the open, then there would be a lot more acceptance for that being a really important part of management. You're absolutely right, and you think about it from the operator's perspective. They can go out five days in a row and shoot two animals each day because they're des- desperately worried the next guy's going to get them. Yeah. Or they can know that they're going to have 10 animals and they'll go, hey, t- it's been raining for a week. We're going out in the morning because that's when they'll all be out. And we'll get all 10 in one morning. Yeah. Um, you know, that makes it more efficient and more uh, profitable for them. Yeah. It's less disruption for the recreational hunter. There's a whole bunch of benefits. And you, you, you're right. We've got to get together and say, how does that management tool become part of the bigger picture? And we get the quality of herds we want. We get the quality of habitat we want. Um, the Waro operators get the numbers and, and effectiveness they want. It's it's a win-win. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's yeah a really important thing. So I mean, I won't keep you too much longer, Don. We've already been chatting for an hour, but um, the Game Animal Council's five-year plan that's available on your website. Yep. Yep. Uh, and, and we're, that's evolving. We've got a strategy meeting coming up uh, a couple of weeks' time where we're looking at, you know, our, our world has changed a bit now that we've got Tim as general manager. So what is our strategy over the next five years? What are the key things we're going to focus on? And there's one thing that I really want to emphasise to anyone who, who listens, and that is take a young fella hunting. Yep. And, and the problem that we face is... Or young lady... Oh, yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I'm not sexist. In fact, there's really good research that show that if, if mum goes hunting, the whole family goes. Yep. If dad goes... Dad goes. Dad goes. And maybe one of the boys. Yep, yeah, I get it. Um, we've, and, I, and I say this at Deerstalkers conferences and various other things. We go out there and we take our kids or our grandkids. That's not the future. The yep. future is that young fellow who lives in town... Yep whose dad probably always wanted to go hunting but never got the opportunity because it was during the 70s and 80s and there were no deer and no one would take them. Yep. They're dead keen. Yeah. Let's get those young people out there and show them, you know, let's go shooting bunnies or yeah. possums. It comes back to that numbers thing. Like Absolutely. I don't want us to be a dying breed. Like, And it's I see it in North America, the disparity between hunters and the non-hunting public who are becoming more urbanized and insulated from hunting as every day goes on 
it's really hard to drum up support with the non-hunting public and sympathy with the non-hunting public if they don't understand hunting. We still have an opportunity in New Zealand to retain that sympathy, retain that social license to be a hunter in New Zealand because we haven't gone too far yet. Most Kiwis still know someone who hunts or know someone who lives on a farm that hunts or know somebody's boyfriend who hunts. Like that, that connection is still there. It's not severed yet. But if we let it go too far, and I, I see it in British Columbia, I, and it, it scares me, is that suddenly people are getting their opinion from hunting purely from what they see in a Disney movie or on National Geographic, which is completely and utterly screwed. Like yep. suddenly, the the you know, the, there's no difference between a, a legal trophy hunter and a poacher. There's no difference between you know the evil villain on a Disney movie and someone who goes and fills their freezer. I think we have to be very conscious of that hunter, and I think that's great advice. Take somebody hunting. Take a young person hunting. Get them into it, and then that will have a flow-on effect. Like if we can retain those numbers, then we are going to always be able to have a seat at the table. Yeah, and, and especially take somebody who normally would not have that opportunity. Yep. Your own kids have got it, your own grandkids, but um, that kid in town, yep. boy or girl, or even parent, yep. if they've got the opportunity, and I, you know, I think I can say with a high level of confidence, every hunter remembers their first deer or their first rabbit or Absolutely. the first thing they shot. It was a hell of a thrill. Yep. And if we get that young person all their parents out there and they get that thrill they'll go actually whether I go hunting every weekend or not it's not important I want that opportunity to be there for me or my children or whatever yeah. that's the critical thing and it's, it helps try and explain hunting to somebody who's never hunted before it's it's not it, it's a very difficult thing it's impossible to do I, I've, I've tried for years and I've almost given up trying to have that conversation you can do it but it's two hours out of your life and they have to be willing to accept, you know, you can't change somebody's mind unless the other participant is willing to have their mind changed. That's just the fact. So if you can get somebody who's got a slight inkling to go out there and experience it, then there's a, even if they don't enjoy it or they don't like it, but they understand the undertone of what makes hunting hunting. And I think that's really, really important to have. And we won't get that sympathy with the general public if we don't maintain that connection. I liken it, it's it's almost a spiritual thing, and that's why it's so hard to explain. If, yeah. and, and we've all experienced people knocking on the door trying to convert us to, to their particular religion, regardless yeah. of our own beliefs. Um, it's very, very hard for them to convert you because you're sitting there thinking, I've got a different belief system. Yeah, Hunting to me is the same. It's, it's almost a spiritual thing, and it's very hard to explain that to somebody unless they come out with you. Yeah. And as you say, whether they actually harvest an animal or not is, kind of is, the is point. almost yeah. irrelevant. It's that camaraderie, it's about being out there, it's about health and exercise, it's about being with nature, it's a whole raft of things. Yeah. And I know Curran is a huge advocate for it, but we have a, like, let's be honest, a, a really big mental health issue in New Zealand, particularly within males. And I forget the statistics, I don't have them in front of me, but I read them the other day and I was shocked how bad it is. For me, I mean, being out in the in the in the Watwaps, in our national parks in New Zealand, chasing animals around, whether you get one or not, has such a massive health, mental, physical, just overall well being benefit that, you know, I 
I cannot stress enough how much I needed in my mind, like in my life. If I took hunting and being in the outdoors out of what I do, I, I wouldn't last very long. Mm. I mean, I, and to be fair, if you analyse how much I've pulled the trigger in the last five years, it would probably be three or four times. Total. As many as that. Yeah. I wish I had that many opportunities. Exactly. But I hunt a lot, Yeah, you know, and I guide and I'm hunting and I'm out there and I'm doing it and I get what I need to get from that scenario without actually pulling the trigger. And I think that's really important to stress. But again, you know, we're preaching to the converted and mm. people listening to this already know that. So the challenge that Don's putting forward and what I'm putting forward is take somebody who doesn't understand that yet and educate them on why. Yep. I think that's, that's probably our single biggest challenge yep. going forward. We're living in a, a rapidly changing world, and the pace of that change is, is accelerating. We're becoming more and more urbanised and less and less, um, or more and more divorced from nature, from the outdoors, from where our food comes from, all of those things. Um, and I can see, not just for hunting, but for agriculture, for a whole raft of things, yep. some real challenges occurring over the next decade. And they will be considerably worse if we don't do our best to to get people to understand what it's all about. And big picture. I mean, the next time you look at somebody's comment on Facebook about something that you disagree with and go to battle with them, like those little internal battles that we have within each other as recreational hunters and then the battles that recreational hunters might have with the professional hunting community or the battles that the professional hunting community might have with the um, waro commercial side of things all those battles and all that energy that we're spending fighting each other over five percent of a difference of opinion when we agree with 95 percent is a distraction a waste of time and energy why the real big battle that we have as hunters going forward is the potential for us to lose the social license to hunt in new zealand because we lose contact with and we lose the sympathy of or understanding of the non-hunting general public who will for now and forever always outnumber us and will continue to become more disconnected, less educated and bigger in volume. So that is the big battle. At the end of the day, all of this stuff we've been talking about is, is great for the Game Animal Council, great for hunting, all this kind of stuff. But we've got to remember like picking our battles as hunters is really important. So next time you're going to have a crack at another hunter, just stop for a minute and think how much time and effort you're going to spend and emotion you're going to expend in this battle that, you know, the end result's probably going to be a lose-lose for both of you when we should be focusing on the bigger picture. Couldn't agree more, and I really appreciate the opportunity to to, to uh, share that thinking. Yeah, well, thank you very much for joining me today, Don. I know you're the busy man. Um, we'll get this out there and promote the shit out of it and try and we'll do the same. I'll make sure that Tim knows it's up and available and we'll try and get people to listen. I mean, to spend, what have we got, 57 minutes of your life to understand, <laughs> you know, a little bit more about what's happening in the background politically and functionally and how our whole system works in New Zealand. I think it's good for all New Zealand hunters. So thank you for taking the time. And thank you for the opportunity. Perfect. G'day. Thanks for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast. There are a number of ways you can connect with myself, Matthew Gibson, or my partner in crime, Curran Island, at The Educated Hunter. And the hub for all of this is our website, theeducatedhunter.com. Our Instagram page is at theeducatedhunter. 
Our website also has a spot where you can sign up for our newsletter that comes once every two weeks and is full of relevant information about hunting in New Zealand and around the world. And lastly, you can search out any of the episodes that we've done in the past and find the show notes on that episode. Other than that, thanks very much for listening and I hope you're having a good day wherever you are and your next hunting adventure is not too far away.